So today begins a new series. We have uh, finished our last series on the devoted life, and now we're starting a new series that we're referring to as Promises for All People. Uh, If you've been with us throughout most of the year, you know that this has kind of been a theme that we've used to help celebrate this 90-year anniversary, this idea of celebrating God's promises. And it's helped us kind of focus in on what are those promises. Uh, We saw them at creation. We saw them with the gift of the Holy Spirit, the formation of the church. We talked about what does it mean to be a church that can stand on those promises? How do we live out the devoted life? And as we go into the months of October and November, our shift of emphasis is going to be towards how do we take these promises to all people? And so what we're going to do is that through the month of October, we're going to start with a a perspective towards our community and, and how do we help engage the community around us. Over the next few weeks, you're going to have a chance to hear from some of these organizations that we have identified as being the recipients of this generosity that we're trying to, to raise as a church family. You're going to have a chance to hear from Seminary Hills Elementary School and kind of understand what they're facing. We're going to have a chance to spotlight um, Gladney Adoption Services as well as Traffic 911. And so this will help us kind of have a better understanding of the vision and the needs of those organizations as we seek to better engage our community. Then when we get to November, that's going to lead us into Missions Month and have a chance to see how do we take these promises not just across the street, but across the world and across the oceans. And so uh, we'll have a chance to focus on those efforts in November. Here's how we're going to do it. Um, Here's the good news. We're finally out of Acts chapter 2. Amen? Right? We get to move on. Uh, Here's the other good news. We're staying in the book of Acts. I would stay in the book of Acts for forever, but I'm afraid it would take us 12 years to complete it. And so here's what I'm going to do is we're going to take a different pace. Uh, We are going to look at different passages within the book of Acts, different sections of scriptures within the first 13 chapters. But but we are going to take it at a slightly different pace. Uh, Just when you thought it was impossible for me to preach a sermon that was longer than one verse, um, we're actually going to cover a whole chapter today, right? So don't let that scare you, okay? We'll, we'll get out of here at a decent time, hopefully. And so we are going to continue to work through the book of Acts as we look at this new series. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 3. And as you're turning there, let me offer a quick story that I think kind of helps set the tone for this new series, and in particular this message today, this, this kind of transition that chapter 3 provides for us. Um, one of the most feared questions in our home with our family is a question that we have to ask almost daily. And it's a question that every time we ask it, it inevitably is going to lead to some form of heartbreak, discouragement, debate, dispute. I mean, it is is inevitable whenever this question comes up. More often than not, that's what it leads to. And maybe you can empathize with this because the question I'm referring to happens almost every evening when we look at each other and we say, what do you want for dinner, right? There's no doubt that none of us are going to agree, right? There's all going to have different opinions, different ideas of what you want to do, and it creates this complaining and all this other stuff. And so through the course of the summer, we thought, you know what? Let's have fun with this. Uh, Let's create the restaurant challenge. And so the restaurant challenge that we adhered to this summer was uh, at some point through the course of the summer, a a family member would have the chance to make their personal choice on where we're going to go eat. Right? Each family member was going to have that choice, and nobody else in the family could dispute it. Right? You just had to go along with it. There was one stipulation. The only stipulation is, is that the restaurant you chose had to be a place that no one else had ever been. Okay? So it was going to force us to break out of our routine. You, you know how it gets with mealtime? You, know, you just keep going to the same place, Chick-fil-A. Right? Let's go to uh, Taco Bueno. Amen. Thank you. Okay. Uh, let's go to these places, same old places, over and over again. And so now we were forced 
to try some new things. And what that did is it, it changed the way that we just even drove around uh, like our neighborhood because I'd be telling the kids, hey, you, you don't know what all is out there, so be looking. Like, what restaurants have you not noticed before, have you not seen before, because that's going to be what you choose. So we'd go to a restaurant. We had like a whole scoring system where we would rate them based on the atmosphere, the service, and the, the taste. And my daughter was really wise to the fact, because we were going to have like a, an overall winner at the end of the summer. So she kind of wised up to how she could skew the results. And for her restaurant, everything got a five, like the highest rating, and everyone else, one and two. Uh, and she was really quick in that regard. But we had so much fun doing this. I mean, it was, it was a great opportunity. And one of the things that it did, the reason I'm telling you this story, is that it changed the way that we saw our immediate community. We saw things we had never really seen before. Right? It forced us out of our routine, and, and we saw new places and new opportunities to engage. And, and it totally changed our perspective. That's what Jesus does. Right? When we choose to follow Jesus, he changes the way we see the world. He changes our understanding of truth. He changes our understanding of life. He changes the way that we see the world around us. And in, what we're going to talk about through the course of today and really throughout this month is how do we begin to see differently these opportunities that are in our midst? How do we break out of these rhythms and these routines or we just keep doing life the same old way and we get to see new opportunities of how we can engage and pursue the opportunities he's put in front of us? Right? So that's kind of the idea is how do we begin to see as Jesus sees? And as we explore that a little bit further, we're going to discover once again that his promises are not just for us but for all people. And so we're going to begin this conversation in verses first, and we're going to break this down into two parts today. I'm going to read the first 10 verses first and walk through a little bit of that, and then we're going to read the second half of chapter 3, and I'll have a couple closing comments there. So let's start in chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 10, or verse 1, reading in, uh, 1 through 10. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. And so the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the, hand, by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Okay, the way that chapter 3 unfolds is very similar to the structure of chapter 2. If you think back through chapter 2, there's this opening miracle of Pentecost that ultimately results in awe and wonder. And then once that unfolds, Peter then stands up and preaches a message of explanation that leads to repentance. You kind of follow a similar pattern here. There is a miracle that evokes awe and wonder in those that see it. And then here in a few minutes, we're going to see how then Peter answers uh, the mystery behind this miracle and leads people to another message of repentance. And so it carries a very similar flow. What I wanted to begin with is this miracle that begins that evokes a sense of awe and wonder. And, and the first thing I want to point out is how it kind of uh, speaks to the context of this series and some of the heart behind this series, right? 
Here we have Peter and John on their way up to the temple, three o'clock in the afternoon, time for afternoon prayers, and there they encounter a man who has to be carried every day to the temple gate to beg for money. So the first thing that I want to point out is that this miracle, this interaction occurs outside the temple walls, right? And, And in so doing, what this is a reminder of for us is that the message of the gospel, the activity of this church that we've just seen form is not designed to be constrained within the walls for their own people. It's actually designed to be carried beyond the walls, even to the very doorstep. And that's the sort of idea that helps us engage the community, right? And think about the the necessity of this man, the dependency that this man has felt throughout his life, right? His whole life, he has suffered from this disability. And he is dependent upon his friends to come and carry him and put him at the gate so that he can beg for money. His only hope is to be seen. It's his only hope. And so here we have this powerful reminder. I love the way that Williams James Jennings says it. He says, before praises can be offered up to God, the poor and the lame, the sick and the pained must be seen. I love that. What a beautiful reminder for us as a church. Right Before we offer up our praises to God, the poor and the lame, the sick and the pained must be seen. And so what we have here is a reminder for you and I how we should go about our lives, right? On our way to church, who do we pass by? On our way to our jobs, to school, what, what are the situations, the needs, the realities of people? Who is among us that is sitting there going, my only hope is to be seen? And do we see them? Do we see these opportunities? Do we see this community around us in the way that Jesus would see them? And, and that's part of what we have here is the disciples following in Jesus' example. Right? It wouldn't be hard for us to go and find numerous other stories in the Gospels of Jesus healing the sick and the lame and those that are hurting. Uh, the one in particular that stood out to me was what you find in John chapter 5. Right? In John chapter 5, you have a very similar occurrence where Jesus and his disciples are going up to Jerusalem for the festival. Right? They're going up to celebrate. They're going up to worship, so to speak. And, and as they approach, there near the city gates, near this colonnade, you have all these folks that are brought forward, all the disabled, the lame, the crippled, the paralyzed. And there's one particular man who had been invalid for 38 years. And so Jesus sees him and understands that he's been suffering through this for so long. And he says, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? And the man says, well, yes, but nobody can help me down into the pool to be in the waters when it's stirred. Every time I try to get closer, someone gets in my way. And what we discover in that exchange is that this, this man who was needing healing expected it to come, one, to come one way, and Jesus gave him a very unexpected response. He says, I'm not here to put you into the water. Let, let me give you a more realistic healing. Let me give you more complete healing. Uh, take up your mat and walk. And immediately the man walked. Right, so the disciples had seen Jesus do this thing, this sort of thing, over and over again. And so here they are walking to the temple, and they see this man, and they too give an unexpected response. And it's, there's three different things about their response that I want to focus on in this first section of this chapter, right? Three different things that I would say are unexpected. The first is that they made their response personal. Okay, so, so picture it. Okay, I don't know how you would picture it, but here's, here's how I see it in my mind. Here's this man who's begging in the penitentiary every day to, uh, gifts of money in order for him to survive. And so he's taken out to the temple courts every day to beg for that sort of assistance. So this to me is kind of the, the person at the busy intersection holding the cardboard sign. 
right, that we drive by so regularly. Or maybe it's those pictures that we see of major metropolitan areas in New York or wherever where people are outside a subway or a bus stop where there's a high foot traffic area. They've got a hat, they've got a bucket, hoping that, that the generosity of those people that pass by are going to help them get through the day. Right, that's kind of what I envision. Now, it says that the man sees Peter and John coming, so he asks them for money, but clearly he's not paying a whole lot of attention to him based on how this transpires, right? So his head is still maybe down, right? And so the first thing that is unexpected is when Peter and John stop and they say, look at us. And in that moment, they make it personal. They're demonstrating to that man, hey, I see you. And I'm going to look you in the eye. I'm going to recognize who you are in your situation, right? They're, they're not just responding uh, haphazardly. They're not responding out of neglect or, or obligation, but they're stopping in that moment, and they're letting this man know that he is seen. They're making their response personal. And so when we engage in our local community, we should do the same, right? We, we don't just give to programs. We don't just give to institutions or organizations. When we go out and we engage, we should do so with the intent and the hope that we actually get to meet someone eye to eye and say, I see you, and I know you deserve to be seen. That's the first thing that makes this so unexpected. They make it personal. The second thing that is so unexpected is that their response is holistic, okay? This, this to me, is probably one of the more thought-provoking elements of this passage, because here would be the expected response. The expected response would be to, to address the economic situation of this man, of this beggar. Right? Can't you see it? Peter and John walking to the temple to pray. They got to get there to worship. They know there's some people along the way that are begging and hurting. And so uh, the expectation would be to toss a few silver coins that person's direction, right? Because they're probably engrossed in conversation. They're, they're talking about this new church, the church planning idea. They're probably coming up with strategies. What's going to be our target audience? What kind of what worship service are we going to have? Are we doing contemporary? Are we doing traditional? Like small group, you know, like they're engaged in the important stuff. So let me just toss some money along my way. That would be a very different story to read, wouldn't it? And yet it would sound eerily similar to our culture. And so what's different is they stop and they recognize that there is a much more complete picture that needs to be spoken of here, right? They, they have a much more holistic response. Think about this. Um, have you ever stopped and wondered, why don't we see miracles like this regularly in our culture? Am I the only one that, that stops and thinks that? Let me be clear. I believe these types of miracles still happen regularly throughout the world. I just don't see them regularly here in our context. And I've often wondered why. And, and on one hand, I think there are a couple of things that, that challenge our faith and our dependency in our creator. For example, I think one of the things that our culture, we often struggle with is, is how do we reconcile faith with science and technology? Right? A lot of times we see them as if they're adversarial. I don't believe they are. I think they're complementary. But what happens is, is a lot of times we become dependent upon scientific and technological explanations. Right? And so if somebody's sick, someone's hurting, then our answer is, well then, well, then what's the diagnosis? What's the treatment? What's the medicine? And again, we should be grateful to be in a culture where we have that sort of luxury to have that sort of care, but not to the point that it replaces our faith in our creator. Right? That's where it becomes dangerous, that when we begin to trust doctors and medicines and technology more than we trust the creator who oversees all and is a great physician. And so I do think that is perhaps one of the reasons that our faith is challenged. Now, the other reason 
that this text makes me think of, and I've wrestled with this for many, many years, is our dependency on affluence and wealth. How many times do we look at a situation and we think, oh, there's ministry that needs to be done. There's a need, to be need, there's a need that needs to be met. How much is it going to cost? What do I need to pay for it? What do I need to give to it? And we, we evaluate our, our ability to respond based on a financial metric, right? And, and again, part of the beauty of the gospel, right, and part of what we've been trying to do as a church is that, yes, you should demonstrate generosity. We should demonstrate this radical generosity that's rooted in radical love, as we've talked before. But what that does is it loosens our grip on earthly treasures and opens our minds to a greater reality. I think it was John Stott that said it this way. He said, there are the gifts of the Caesars of the world, and then there are the gifts of God. And too often, we rely on the gifts of the Caesars of the world, money, commodities, when what we really should be doing is relying on the gifts of God. And so which one do you rely on more? Which one do we rely on more as a church? It is not enough for us just to raise money and then give it away. We need to have a holistic response where we offer not just the gifts of Caesars, but the gifts of God. And so here's what's remarkable. With, with Peter and John, they stop and they go, silver and gold, I don't have. <laughs> this isn't something I can just pay and take care of, but I have something greater for you. And what they discover is that in this, in this response of being more personal, is they actually stop and take the time to figure out, why is this person in poverty? They don't just try to address the economic situation. They stop and recognize that this is not just about him not having money. This is about his physical condition that has obviously led to an emotional and mental and spiritual condition as well. And so we're going to treat all of it. What I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Walk. It's an amazing response. It is holistic. And when we go and we engage the community, it is not enough for us just to engage at a surface level and treat what we think is the overwhelming, obvious answer, but to stop and go, well, why is this person hurting? Why are they in danger? Why are they in grief? Why are they in poverty? And let me speak not just the immediate situation, but to the whole person. Let me speak to them emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually. And that's what they do, and they do so in the name of Jesus. It's a remarkable response. Now that leads us to the third element that to me is very unexpected here, is as soon as he says, now walk, Peter then reaches out his right hand and helps him to his feet. I love that, right? He actually reaches out and touches this man who he's offered this healing to. Now a lot of times uh, we would maybe think that that would be a demonstration of a lack of faith, right? As if Peter's like, man, I hope this works. Let's see if I can get you up. Yep. Okay, good. It worked. But what it really is, is following this example of intimacy. That's the third thing that makes it unexpected, that it, the response was intimate as well. How many times do we see Jesus solidify his healing power through the power of touch? Touching the leper, right? Somebody that, that came up and touched his robe and how that just physical contact brought about healing. Jesus demonstrates his love with an intimacy that is so transformative. And so Peter demonstrates that same intimacy. Thomas Walker uh, has a beautiful description of it. He says, the power was Christ, but the hands were Peter's. And when we go and we engage this community, I think we should go with that same mindset. 
we go knowing that it, the power belongs to Christ, but the hands he is using is our own. And so when we go and when we engage, we do so on a personal level, on a holistic level, and an intimate level that reveals the healing power of Jesus. And when we do that, guess what happens? Look what happens to this man. He goes from outside the temple gates to inside. He's brought into their company. He's brought into their community. He's brought into the praises of God that they were going to go up and offer. And that's the sort of transforming work that evokes awe and wonder in those that see it. And that's what we want to try to accomplish as well. Let's continue reading. Let's see what happens next. Picking back up in verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Now, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. For he said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Okay, I love what happens here because now we get a complete picture of how God would desire his followers, the followers of Christ, to engage a community. What we see with Peter and John is that they both heal and share, right? They, they meet needs and they preach and proclaim. It is so easy for us to go through life and engage the community and try to do one without the other, right? So we try to heal and never preach, and so we come up with some great opportunities to meet people's needs. We'll, we'll hand out food, we'll develop soup kitchens, we'll, we'll pass out uh, clothing, whatever it is, and we might barely mention the gospel. And as a result, there's little to distinguish us from any other volunteer organization. Or maybe we make the mistake on the other end of the spectrum, and we go and we preach, and we don't heal. Right? And we go out there and we get passionate about doctrine and we sign statements and treatises and all these different things and we let people know this gospel we believe and the truth that we adhere to and we barely heal the people that we're trying to proclaim to and as a result our message falls on deaf ears well you have to do is both right you have to heal and preach you have to love with word and deed and so what we have in this section is peter revealing here's the word that needs to be conveyed 
And I think there are several lessons we can take from it. The first thing that he does is he starts with a word of conviction. This wouldn't be popular in our culture today. This is a word of controversy. Right? He, he talks about something that's uncomfortable for them. Think about this word of conviction. He says, um, this isn't about me. This isn't what I've done. No, this is God, the father of Jacob, Isaac, and, uh, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the one who has chosen to glorify Jesus. Oh, you don't remember Jesus. He's the one you handed over to be killed. He's the one you disowned. He's the one you killed, but God raised from the dead. It is an undeniable word of conviction. What our culture would tell us today is to not do that. What our culture tells us today is to only offer a word of tolerance. Right? What our culture defines as tolerance today is that that's the true posture of love, to tolerate what other people choose, how they want to live, how they want to treat others, how they want to go about life, all those different things. That's what we're told. The reality is, though, is that tolerance is not a gesture of love, right? If you see a child, your own son or daughter, a, a sibling, a parent, a close friend, and they are choosing a way of life that is less than fulfilling, that is potentially harmful to them or to others, tolerance is not an act of love. It's the opposite. Love says, hey, because I love you, I hope you know there is another way. There's another way to live. There's another way to choose. There's another way to see this world. Love is going to take that risk and open up the controversy of conviction. That's what Peter does. Let me be very clear. People aren't going to choose a savior they don't know they need. It's not going to happen. Right? And so we have now, I don't know the tone with which this was offered. I don't know the tone with which you hear it, but I believe when we look at the fullness of the message, we see it's offered with love and sincerity as well as courage. And so when we go, we have to bring a word of conviction. We have to awaken ourselves and others to a need for a savior. That's the way it begins. Now, when we do that, the second thing that Peter does is he points them to faith in Jesus, right? You want to know how this happened? Well, God raised Jesus from the dead, so it's by faith in him that this miracle's taken place. It's in his name that this man now stands before you healed completely. And I love that reference to complete healing. It reiterates what we were talking about earlier, about this holistic approach, right? This was more than just an economical solution, but this man now stands before you with both mind, body, and soul completely healed. And that's only happened through the name of Jesus Christ. And so we go giving a clear example of where this faith needs to be directed. It needs to be directed to no other name but the name of Christ. Now, once we do this, this is where I think Peter is able to demonstrate a, a sense of sympathy and understanding and love. I love it. He, he brings this harsh word of conviction. He's like, now listen, I know you acted out of ignorance, right? And, and I even know that this was God's plan in order for the Messiah to suffer. I know that, that if you knew that this was the Messiah, you likely would not have done this. But guess what? Your ignorance and God's sovereignty does not excuse you from needing repentance. You must repent. And that's the, the center of this message. That's the call of response that Peter offers to this, this community. Right now, think about repentance. I, I don't know how you've had it explained to you before. What, I, what I've typically heard and read is that repentance is the 180. Right? So you're going this direction, and then when you repent, you choose to take the 180 and start walking the opposite direction. 
So if I've been choosing a life of sin and selfishness this way, when I choose to follow Jesus, he's going to lead me this way. Now, I think that's a very accurate and true definition of the word, but what I think we often fail to do is to describe what happens to us when we choose to make that shift. And that's what I love about this message. That's what I love about what Peter elaborates on, because he explains the the impact of such a repentant heart and what it can do for us. The first thing he points out about repentance is that it offers forgiveness, right? When we choose to repent, he takes our sins and he wipes them out. What a beautiful truth. How many times have either you or someone you know been afraid to come to the gospel because in their minds they thought there's no way God can forgive me for what I've done? There's no chance. Or or they come out of fear thinking that that there's going to be additional mistakes and failures along the way. The hope of the gospel is complete and total forgiveness. There is nothing you have done or could ever do that Christ can't forgive. There is nothing that is more powerful than his grace. And that's the message of hope and love that Peter offers. Man, your sins, as far as the east from the west, will be forgotten by our creator. The repentance that you you so desperately need leads you to an amazing understanding of his mercy. And then it brings in a refreshing from the Lord. I love that, right? It's not just that you find mercy and forgiveness, but you are brought to new life. You're made into a new creation. He gives you purpose. He gives you significance. He wipes away any sense of of monotony or redundancy or insignificance in your life, and he leads you into a life that is abundant living. He refreshes your soul when we truly repent We don't just find mercy, but something ignites within us, and we find a purpose and a cause to surrender to, and it's powerful, and it's beautiful, and it's meaningful. And then he also introduces us to hope. Repentance leads us to an understanding that this Messiah is for you. He returns for you. That's the the hope that continues to be an anchor for our soul. I love the way that he explains it. He says, "Now, now he has to be kept in heaven for a while until the time of restoration comes. And that's that powerful word, restoration, that powerful message that we sung about earlier. And it's a message that we need to never lose sight of. Because as Caroline pointed out, there are sometimes we walk into this room and we are joyful, and there are sometimes we walk in this room and we are broken and we're hurting. And a lot of times that, that brokenness and that hurt is coming from just this harsh reminder that this world is broken. I mean, over the last couple of weeks, we have been reminded again of the overwhelming impact of something like cancer. People within this church, friends beyond this church that are dealing with that new reality. We think about the hardships that people face, the brokenness in families, the grief of losing loved ones. I think about my own family. Uh, I can't tell you all how many times, I think about my youngest son, I can't tell you how grateful I am for him and and the joy that he has for life. Um, If you met him, he would would treat you like you're his best friend, Um, and he may never have known you before. He's just filled with joy and laughter, and he has enriched our home in so many ways. But I can't tell you how many times I look at him and my heart breaks. And I just think, 
we shouldn't live in a world where adoption is necessary. We shouldn't live in a world where there's cancer. But we do. And the hope that we cling to, the hope that repentance brings us into, is that there's going to be a day where all of this is restored to a new heaven and new earth. It brings us into a closer glimpse of life eternal and life with our Savior and our King. And that is the only hope that really serves as an anchor for this life. But that's the hope that Jesus offers. And that's the repentance that Peter is preaching here. It's a remarkable message of love and compassion and refreshing and restoration. And so let me, let me close with a reminder in the way that, that Peter closes this message. After he extends this word of invitation, he just goes on to a, a little history lesson saying, listen, this is the promise that has been foretold since the time of the prophets and even before, right? These are the things that have been spoken of for many, many years. He evokes the spirit of Moses and Samuel and Abraham, right? He talks about the, the greater prophet that's going to come after Moses. You think about how the Messiah was prophesied to come from the line of David and Samuel was the one that anointed and initiated that line of David. You think about the covenant of Abraham, right? That that when God called Abraham to go to a place that I will show you, he says, I will make you a blessing and you will be a blessing to all peoples. When he asked Abraham to be willing to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, and, and Abraham demonstrates that faithfulness, God reiterates this covenant, says, you will be a blessing to all peoples. And so what Peter is explaining here is that these promises of old, this hope that we've been clinging to, that there would be a day where we would discover the richness of God's forgiveness, the beauty of his refreshment, and the hope of his restoration, all those things have been revealed in the power of Jesus Christ. It is here, and it is for all people. Yes, it's for you, you who are begging right here at the temple courts. It is for us who have been chosen as his people from the very beginning. It is for those who would be considered to be Gentiles. And we're going to carry this message to the streets, to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Because these promises are for all people. This hope of restoration, this hope of refreshing, this hope of change, this hope of healing, it is for you. I want to close with this quote from William James Jennings, who I think says it so well as a reminder for us in terms of what sort of message we have a chance to carry to this community. He says, the Jesus presented by Luke, referring to the one who wrote the book of Acts, the Jesus presented by Luke, however, has overcome death so that people's histories no longer face the silencing power of death that can erode and ultimately destroy the memories of all people. Now Jesus eagerly wants to take hold of the histories of people and bring them to a good end, which is actually a new beginning. He can take hold of their ambiguity. He can take hold of their pain, their memories of horror, and weave their stories together with the stories of others and give all people sight of a new creation and life eternal. This is the spilling over of the restoration of Israel and the explosion beyond its borders of historical expectation. All peoples may have a new future in Jesus and each one of us have a new story to tell that changes the end we previously expected. This is the message we take to our community. This is the message we cling to ourselves. That Jesus looks at us and he says, you no longer have to fear the silencing power of death. It's been overcome. And he can take hold of our stories 
the stories not just of us, but all people. They're around this world right now wondering, are they forgotten? Are they insignificant? Are they lost? He gets a hold of their stories and he weaves them together and he brings them into sight of a new creation. He says, the end you previously expected is no more. The end you have now is with me. And that's the promise and the hope of the gospel. And that's the promise and the hope that we need to carry to our community and to our world. And so it begins, church, with us seeing as Jesus sees. And when we do so, we're able to engage people in a personal way, a holistic way, and an intimate way. We carry a message that, yes, carries a level of conviction, but directs them to the faith that we should all have in Jesus. It reminds us of the power of repentance, a repentance that finds forgiveness, that finds refreshing and restoration. When we see as Jesus sees, we move forward boldly and confidently, reminding ourselves that his promises are for all people. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we are grateful that we have a chance to once again carry this message of hope. And I ask God that you would allow us to do so with a sort of boldness and fearlessness that we've read about today, God. That our dependency would be on you and your power and not our own. God, that we would carry this message of hope in a manner that allows us to see the miraculous, that allows us to see the transformation of hearts and souls in a way that allows them to be brought into a greater glimpse of these promises that you've given us through Jesus Christ. Let us be found faithful. Let us be found courageous. Let us be found loving as we seek to bring you the glory you so richly deserve. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.